Jesus Christ, man. Yeah. Get over here. Come over here so I can <laughs> give you a big hug. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's for the smile? Face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So this week, we kind of uh, continue our preparation for the Oscars. So we are tying in uh, a movie to Hidden Figures, which we'll be talking about uh, later this week. Uh, But right now, we chose The Imitation Game. And the reason I chose that is at first, I was kind of going through, like, let me me find a movie about black female intellectuals. And I was like... (laughs) Oh, right. Those don't exist. Uh, So I decided to take a look at, you know, biopics that tell tell kind of stories we know, but we don't know the background of them. So I landed on the imitation game and then I started researching people I know uh, who don't hate this movie. Because uh, there's a lot of those that hate this movie. Uh, and I landed uh, upon Jason uh, from the film faculty and the Atlantic Screen Connection. So thanks for being here for this episode. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a long time coming and I've been listening to your show for a while and just being here is quite the honor, sir. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, we're happy to have you here. Um, so before we jump into uh, the psychology, because I'll be talking about kind of the importance of diversity, uh, why don't you give us uh, a few movie recommendations? I, I hear you have more than two. So let's get into that. Well, I think the first one that came to mind for me was uh, Beautiful Mind, the Ron Howard picture, mm-hmm. obviously, because of the math angle, sure. not necessarily because of the diversity angle. But yeah, I think that one with Russell Crowe and uh, Jennifer Connelly really speaks to what we're, you know, what we what we have in terms of math and Alan Turing and all that. Sure. Uh, the other one in terms of diversity that actually ties into today's picture was more Milk or the Life and Times of Harvey Milk. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so the first openly gay man to be elected to public office in California, you know, so civil civic rights or civil rights for homosexuals. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was very interesting for that. And uh, the other two that are a little bit more mainstream, in my opinion, would be X-Men 2 United mm-hmm. and also X-Men Days of Future Past. So, I mean, those movies have been acting as metaphors for acceptance and uh, talking about the importance of diversity in all spheres of society and how people should stop looking at what makes them different and try to look at what makes them alike more and more. So those would be the movie recommendations that I have. Yeah, and we'll probably get into that, but I think that's that's a really great point. You know, like we're we get really focused on difference uh, within humanity, but there there's so much more about us that's similar rather than what's different. Like if you just kind yeah. of break it down, there's there's more similarities than differences. And I think I think you know we'll talk about it with the movie, but you have some people in this movie who quote unquote, wouldn't be seen, quote unquote, as, you know, properly adjusted or normal or don't pick up social cues, that kind of thing. And it's important to note that they're important, too. So so great. Uh, Some great movie recommendations. I'm not a big fan of A Beautiful Mind. I don't see myself watching that again. Uh, But the X-Men movies are always great uh, for diversity. And Milk is really good. Uh, Yeah, it's a great one of my favorite Sean Penn performances, I think. Definitely yep. worth watching. So, all right. Um, so uh, before we take our break, why don't you tell people about Film Faculty and Atlantic Screen Connection so they can catch up with you there? Uh, well, Film Faculty is where I review films. You can find me on WordPress at Film Faculty. Um, but I'm going to be focusing more on essays from now on. I haven't been reviewing uh, much there. There's a couple of essays there already. You can actually 
find some of David's uh, reviews there for Oscar contenders such as Hacksaw Ridge, Moonlight, and you even have a great review of Noah Baumbach's uh, film on De Palma, mm, which I right. actually yeah. watched on your recommendation, which was great. And uh, as for the podca- podcast, sorry, the Atlantic Screen Connection, it's a show that I co-host with Lee Brady from Big Picture Reviews. And we focus more on film analysis rather than straight up reviews. So we look at how films communicate their messages through themes, motifs, and mostly visual language, you know, especially getting down to the nitty gritty of what, why films are well-made or not. And uh, that's it. We've gotten recently like really good feedback on uh, our Paul Thomas Anderson retrospective, uh, going through his seven feature films, like from Heartache to Inherent Vice, and a lot of people giving us a lot of feedback. So I want to thank them too. Uh, our latest show is on uh, Split, M. Night Shyamalan Split, but we actually really got into a big conversation breaking down a lot of his films from uh, you know The Sixth Sense all the way to his most recent one. Uh, but if people want to find us, they can look up the Atlantic SC podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, they can also look for our takes on Arrival, Terminator 2, and Sing Street. We'd be happy to have some more people listening in. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. And I would definitely, it's a, it's a podcast I listen to. I would highly recommend it. It is a very different kind of, uh, film discussion. Like you said, it's, it's almost more of a meta discussion about film rather than a like, let's break down this one film and take a really close look at it. It's like, okay, what's the message? What, what's, what are they trying to get across? And let's talk about that. So I definitely, definitely recommend, uh, ASC. So check them out. All right. Thank you. Um, Sure. So we're going to take a little break. I'll talk about diversity and then we'll bring you back to talk about the imitation game. Most people know Stanley Kubrick is one of the greatest filmmakers of our time. But did you know that later in his career, he was so embarrassed by his first and lowest rated film, Fear and Desire, that he tried to stop it from being seen by the public? Hi, I'm Nate Jones. And I'm Austin Gold. And together we co-host the best and worst of the best podcast, a show where we pit a great director's highest and lowest rated films on IMDb against each other to see what exactly went right and what went oh Oh, so wrong. We've already covered directors like Stanley Kubrick, the Coen brothers, Quentin Tarantino, Steven Spielberg, and many more. Check us out at bwbpod.com and let us know what great director you think had the biggest blunder. All right, so it's time for the psychological section. Today, we're talking about diversity. And diversity, really simply defined, is the presence of of a wide range of variation in the qualities or attributes under discussion. So we're just looking at variation. Of course, there's lots of different kinds of diversity, like cultural diversity. So amongst humans in our social context, this this term refers to the presence in a population in a wide variety of cultures, languages, physical features, ethnic groups, socioeconomic backgrounds, religious beliefs, sexuality, gender identity, even neurology. And at the international level, diversity will refer to the existence of many peoples contributing their unique experiences to humanity's culture. The preservation of our planet's linguistic and cultural diversity in the context of this kind of worldwide integration is actually the object of a lot of concern to many people, not only within psychology, but to people in general as well. Okay, so our first article is about political diversity within the realm of social and personality psychology. So this is important because research in social and personality psychology often has a direct impact on important political debates of the time. And this was written in 2012, by the way. 
For example, social and personality psychologists studied the nature of prejudice and discrimination, the origins of ideology, and even the intuitive kind of underpinnings of people's moral convictions. So the political beliefs of researchers can have these really big consequences for research because that is how they go into their research. So basically what this study wanted to do was to answer three questions. One, how left-wing is the political ideology of social and personality psychologists? Two, do social and personality psychologists accurately perceive the ideology of their colleagues? And third, is there a perceived or actual hostile climate for or even willingness to discriminate against conservative social personality psychologists? So in order to do this, they contacted um, basically 2,000 members of an electronic mailing list who were all social and personality psychologists and invited them to complete two brief online surveys. The first survey, its primary purpose was to assess the political ideology of social and personality psychologists on social issues, economic issues, and foreign policy. So they had to report their ideology rather than asking about specific questions because this self-rated ideology is actually really predictive of attitudes on the specific issues. It allows a straightforward classification of respondents as liberal, moderate, or conservative. So they ended up getting 500 people to participate. And as expected, people were really liberal on average in all three of the domains that they asked about. But there was only an a liberal overwhelming majority on social issues. In social issues, only a handful described themselves as moderate, like 5%, and only 4% described themselves as conservative. But in the other two domains, there was actually a lot of diversity. On economic issues, uh, nearly 20% were moderate and 18% were conservative. And on foreign policy, 21% saw themselves as moderates and 10% saw themselves as conservative. Now, as I mentioned, they also had to give others ideology, what they thought of the other people in this survey. And participants, participants believed that the average social personality psychologist to be more liberal than they themselves were on economic issues and for foreign policy. But actually, they were pretty accurate as far as perceptions of others when it came to the social issues. Now, in the second survey, six months after this initial data collection, they contacted again all the members of this mailing list, and then they described the measures below along with the results. So they were able to get complete data from about 266 people in this second survey. And they took a look at a lot of things like political ideology, whether there was a hostile climate for conservatives, a stated willingness to discriminate against them. Now, what we found here is that like most scientists, social and personality psychologists are on average more liberal than the general population. Yet we also find in these two studies that their political ideology is actually more diverse than assumed. On economics and foreign policy, a pretty big minority describes themselves as moderate or conservative. And what we've what we found as far as like, okay, so why don't we have as many conservative colleagues is that members of the conservative minority are out there. They're just reluctant to express their political beliefs publicly. And the second survey really showed why. This hostility towards and willingness to discriminate against conservatives is actually pretty widespread in, in the world of psychology. One in six people said that she or he would be somewhat or more inclined to discriminate against conservatives in inviting them for things like symposia or reviewing their work. So it actually professionally is a bad idea to be conservative as a psychologist. One in four would discriminate in reviewing their grant applications. So you're screwing with their money, essentially. And more than one in three would discriminate against them when making hiring decisions. So this willingness to discriminate is not just about small decisions. 
In fact, it gets stronger when it comes to the most important decisions like grant applications and hiring. So this hostile climate offers a pretty simple explanation of why people would hide their political opinions from their colleagues. All academics depend on the opinions of their colleagues who will judge their papers, their grants, their job applications, everything. And given that these judgments are typically made by many reviewers, most of whom are liberal, this means that if you're an outspoken conservative, you have a real serious problem. And the more conservative respondents that they are, the more that they were the more that they will hide their political opinions. So this is a really big problem. This is a really uh, there's a lot of kind of ugly implications for this is that we are starting to not even starting to but as psychologists we're living in this bubble where we think everything and everyone is liberal so we go out into the world and try to disseminate this but we're not getting the diversity of opinion that we could be and not only are we not getting it but we're putting them in such a situation where they may even feel fear or feel like I can't have a career if these are my beliefs so that's that's not so great for a supposedly open-minded and liberal community like that of psychologists. Okay, so I think this last article is particularly applicable to the movie because in the movie, we t- we're going to talk a lot about how diversity is important in teams uh, because that is what's going on with trying to break the Enigma code in the imitation game. So this study from Kearney, Gebert, and Volpel uh, in 2009 uh, was talking about when and how diversity benefits teams and the importance of team members' needs for cognition. So in the early 2000s, there was actually a really big surge in research on how teams should be composed in order to foster high levels of performance. And that's because organizations starting in the like 90s and 2000s started increasingly to rely on teams to generate solutions required for sustained success, particularly in business. So this team composition research is usually concerned with two things. One, dispersion, so demographics, cognitive or personality diversity, and mean levels of team members member characteristics like average team ability, average team expertise, and average of the team's personality. So despite all of this research, there's still a fair amount, there's some pretty big gaps in understanding these phenomena. For example, there have been no real consistent main effects of either demographic, cognitive, or personality diversity on the outcomes. We figured out what the, what, what the makeup was, but we didn't know how, how it really affected anything. So when they were looking at diversity, they had a couple hypotheses. One, the team need for cognition will moderate the relationship between educational diversity and the elaboration of task-relevant information. This relationship will be more strongly positive when need for cognition is high rather than low. And the second hypothesis is team need for cognition will moderate the relationship between age diversity and the elaboration of task-relevant information. This will be positive when need for cognition is high, but negative when need for cognition is low. They also thought that we would find a team need for cognition will moderate the relationship between the, the diversity of education and the collective team identification. And this will be more strongly positive when the need for cognition is high. Also, team need for cognition will moderate the relationship between age diversity and this team identification, and this relationship will be positive when need for cognition is high. So as far as their sample, they had 83 teams. Um, 
They had 83 teams from eight different organizations, and it included uh, teams of pharmaceutical teams, insurance, telecommunications, manufacturing, media, food, and energy. So they wanted to get a really big variety here, which is really smart. And they gave them all a bunch of measures. One, a measure of diversity. Two, a scale called the need for cognition, and they measured it with an 18-item need for cognition scale. They were asked how much each statement was characteristic of them, and it ranged from very uncharacteristic to very characteristic. And sample items are things like, I find satisfaction in, deliber- in deliberating hard and for long hours, or I will enjoy a task that involves coming up with new solutions to problems. They're also given measures on elaboration of task-relevant information, collective team identification, team performance, and there were some control variables in there as well. Okay, and here's uh, what they found. They wanted to take a look. Because we have these rising levels of diversity, organizations have to find ways to prevent differences among employees from disrupting the communication and cooperation and the performance that kind of comes from that. And what they found here is that the mean need for cognition in a team would moderate the relationship of both educational specialization and age diversity with the elaboration of task-relevant information, collective team identification, and team performance. So both types of diversity were significantly positively related to each of these variables only when team need for cognition was high. So what does this really mean? The results support that the main assumption of their model here, which is that a high team need for cognition promotes the beneficial effects of diversity predicted by the information perspective and at the same time creates conditions that help prevent the adverse effects of this diversity, were predicted by this kind of social categorization and the perspective of everyone being similar. So by contrast, the need for cognition had less of an effect in a homogenous team. So what we're saying here is in situations where you really need to use your brain and you really need to think deeply and think long about things, like like in the example of our film, this is a, a novel problem that no one knew how to fix. So the best possible situation is to have the most diverse team, whether it be you know speciality, age, education, the most diverse amount of people you can have in this situation is the best. And I think that is kind of the message of the movie too. So it's nice that the psychological data, granted, many, many years later in the 2000s, kind of backs this up. All right, so we're going to take a break, and then we'll come back with Jason to talk about the imitation game. Watched the movie, check, popped the popcorn, check, sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home, check, and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. (laughs) Didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight. Your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. Uh, What's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all, all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show Uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new or possibly old breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. 
All right. So we're back to talk about the movie. So we're back to talk about The Imitation Game, a movie that, at least in my experience with podcasters, got a lot of flack uh, when it came out. Not really sure why. So maybe we could talk about that. But what's your history uh, with The Imitation Game? Did you see it in theaters? How many times have you watched it? All that kind of stuff. My history with The Imitation Game comes from my girlfriend's love for Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, all right. Fair enough. And so, <laughs> I mean, I, I had really, I had really, I'd never heard of Morton Tilden. Uh, but I kind of really enjoyed Cumberbatch and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yes, I thought he had very stoic performance. And then after also that, uh, everyone obviously... also everyone watched Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It's amazing. It's a great fit. someday so we'll cover it on the show, and it's fantastic. Continue. Okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, no worries. And uh, I mean, well, obviously, I, I got pulled into Sherlock, and so I thought he was brilliant in that. And say what you will about Star Trek Into Darkness, I really like Benedict Cumberbatch's performance in that as well. So, I mean, he was high on my radar of guys to watch in terms of actors. And so we were just flipping through, I think it was, I think it was, was it maybe Netflix or maybe I rented it on mm. iTunes, but I hadn't seen it in theaters because being in Quebec City, we don't get that many English films. And so I have oh, to kind of sure. my way to find these things. But um, yeah, so I, I think we were just flipping through iTunes. It got a lot of buzz. You know, people were talking about Cumberbatch and Kira Knightley at being in it as well. Mm-hmm. And so I figured, yeah, let's sit down and watch this. And I'd never really heard of Alan Turing, but my girlfriend is into math and physics and all that stuff. So she knew who he was and she wanted to hear what his story was about. So we sat down and watched that. And I really, really dug the film. I thought it was really great. The performances were fantastic. And the direction was actually quite surprising, in my opinion. Right. Nice. Yeah, for me, I actually saw it in theaters. Uh, strangely, we have kind of a backwards connection here. I I got my girlfriend into Benedict Cumberbatch. She was like, I don't see what the big deal is. And I'm like, sit down and watch this. Watch Sherlock. You're going to love it. And then she kind of fell in love both with the show and with him. Uh, so I feel like I've kind of screwed myself there, but, uh, <laughs> so, so, so of course we went and saw the movie and I had, you know, I knew kind of the basics about Turing. I knew about the Turing test. I knew he was involved, uh, you know, in, in the war effort, but I didn't really know any of the details. So it was exciting to get to see like, oh, we get to see this story about a time in history that feels like we've seen everything about it. But what, what about these behind the scenes things? So it would be cool to go check that out. So I thought and saw it in theaters and really enjoyed it, uh, and then kind of came home and listened to other people's opinions. And I was like, did we watch the same movie? Cause I, I really had a good time with this and I was really, yeah. and I was really moved by it. Uh, so, uh, you know, I bought it when it came out on Blu-ray and watched it then and then watched it oh, again nice. for this. So it's, it's a movie I've gone back to. And I think biopics in general are tough. I think there's kind of two ways to do it. You can kind of try and tell the whole story of a person, or you could tell the story of one portion of their life. Uh, And I think sometimes movies make the mistake of taking on too much and be like, we're going to tell everything that happened in this man's 40 to 70 to 80 years, whatever it may be. Um, And I I think this movie does a good job of balancing that, but I'm sure we'll get into that. So you brought up the director, uh, Morton Tildum, and I think this was actually his first English language film. That he yep. directed. So, you know, that's got to be a challenge. He also directed uh, Passengers, which is not so great. Uh, but so yeah, it's yeah, a, I mean, how it's do you a, go from that to that? You know, it's, it's a fine. really weird step to go from a movie like this to a movie like Passengers. Uh, but what did you think of the direction overall? Well, I mean, most of the time, I, I kind of try to pick up on certain motifs that these guys are going for. And I thought that Tildum was a very responsible director because. Um, one of the first motifs that he has shows up in the film is a peas and carrots motif. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. 
And I thought it was really great because it occurs near the end of the first act, and it's young Turing separating these peas and carrots, and he gets bullied, and like a kid dumps a, a plate full of the, the stuff on him. And it got me thinking of Forrest Gump and how he used to say, me and Jenny were like peas and carrots, so these things that are going together. So we have that opposing thing in uh, The Imitation Game where he's actually trying to separate the peas and carrots versus Forrest Gump, who's trying to bring them together. But it also is one of the times where he meets Christopher for the first time. And I thought that Tildum was really trying to play on that little motif in order to kind of go with the diversity that you were talking about, that no, this is the evolution of what Turing is going to go through, is that he's going to notice that peas and carrots actually do mix in society. Mm. We're going to have to really bring these things together. And I thought it was really, really great because it shows up at a couple of uh, key moments during the film. So yeah, I thought that uh, Tildum's focus on these little, little minuscule details really elevated the film for me. Yeah, I think I think the details are where he he works best. I think I think he he makes a mistake for me. It starts out as a positive and then turns into a negative because I think he comes back okay. to it a little too much. But what you have to do with a movie like this when you have a character um who is socially awkward at best, let's say. Right. Um and it's about the war effort. You have to comp- you have to remind your audience of the stakes. Because you get the feeling, not that he doesn't care, but that's not why he's doing what he's doing. He's doing this because he likes to solve problems. I think that's his real focus, and it's it's something that's evading him. But we have to keep right. being reminded that you know every day, every minute, people are dying in this war. Um, mm-hmm. So we have a lot of these shots of like you know bombs being dropped and old kind of black and white style footage of the war. And I like that that's there, but I did feel like he went to the well a couple too many times where I was like, I, I get it, but let's get back to the mystery. Let's get back to solving this problem because that's what's interesting right now. So I know why he went that direction. I just felt like mm-hmm. he went back a couple too many times. Oh, well, possibly. But I mean, to me, I think it was, essentially to show just that we had to understand that these people, all the people that were the cryptanalysts that were there were really separated from the war. And at the same time, I mean, if we're sitting in our living rooms, these are atrocities that we won't have lived in anyway. So I mean, to actually be able to show us this footage in the comfort of our own homes could be somewhat of, um, how can I put it? Uh, A little hypocritical, But at the same time, I really think that it was necessary for us to understand that there's a lot of calculation going in what they have to do. And the calculation is in body count. So, I mean, you have to be reminded constantly of the war. I mean, here in Canada, the United States, we weren't necessarily affected by that war, especially not me because I wasn't there. But at the same time, (laughs) I just think that. It didn't bother me. It was something that I was Mm. like, okay, yeah, now I'm reminded. It's not just about how, how, um, how he feels. It's really about how he feels about the whole situation and right. how everyone, you know, this idea of everyone, uh, you have this destruction that's going on outside, essentially creating divisions between people. And at the same time, he's trying to stop these divisions from happening. So I thought it was interesting for told him to kind of pepper out. Maybe you think that he went to the well a little bit too much, right. possibly, but at the same time, I feel like it's to show just how much these people are trying to bring us together while the outside world is actually tearing itself apart. Yeah, I think that's a good point. But I think for me, the most effective uh, piece of that was the scene where they're all about to start working. And Mark Strong, who's kind of the head of MI6, kind of comes in and tells them, like, you know, kind of look at your watch. This is Stuart Mingus, MI6. There are only five divisions of military intelligence. There is no MI6. Exactly. That's the spirit. 
Mr. Turing, do you know how many British servicemen have died because of Enigma? Uh, no, I don't. Three. While we've been having this conversation. Oh, look, there's another. I rather hope he didn't have a family. Like that, yeah. that really got the point across rather than, and I think some of it is because like some of it was old footage and some of it was kind of, you know, new footage of like, you know, this plane with bombs dropping. It didn't, for me, it didn't quite fit into the look of the film because everything else I feel like, and we'll talk about that in production design, but I felt like they did a great yeah. job of capturing uh, that time. Um, the, the one thing I was, uh, wondering about what you thought about, like it's, this movie's a really tough balance and some of this is writing, but some of it's directing too, is right. you have the plot of the Enigma machine and Turing's, mm-hmm. Turing's machine, his Christopher, but then you also have to, I think, kind of include, you know, his sexuality in the film, uh, right. because that becomes important, especially with the ver- the very end of the film. So how do you think they handled balancing those two things? Because I could see it going either way. Like if you if you focus too much on kind of, for lack of a better term, the gay subplot of the film, then it's like, but aren't we supposed to be focused on the war? So how do you think uh, Tildum handled balancing those two things? Well, I think that if I'm going to look at it from the Enigma Machines point of view, I think that it would well, not the Enigma Machines point of view. But if I'm looking at it like from from the perspective of if Alan makes the machine work, everything will solve itself, but that's not the way it is, you know? Right. I thought that Tildum had a really interesting balancing axe to pull off, and I, I don't think that it was that terrible of a mix. I think that they he did enough on the war, but at the same time is a metaphorical representation of the inner war that Turing is going through, that if he actually makes this machine work, that everything for himself is going to start to work. He'll start to understand himself a lot better. And so, I don't know. I think that it worked well for me. I don't think that the... I think Tilden paid enough attention to it to say that, is it really that necessary for us to focus on this? Because every part of us is more than one thing. Right. And I think that the, the character of Nock, the guy that actually arrests him, he feels bad at the end of the yeah. film because he's pulled in and he ends up being, uh, well, like he says, I can't judge you, you know, because you've went through all this stuff. And I think that he feels uh, insanely bad for what's going to happen because he won't be known as someone who actually saved them from the war. He's going to be known for someone who's going to be classified under gross indecency. Right. You know, so I think that not everyone is just this one thing. And I think that the message that Tilden was trying to send out with the, like you said, the, the gay subplot is that it's not that necessary for us to focus on. Right. You know, it's not necessary for us to necessarily focus on the war, but what the achievement of these people did might be something that maybe uh, a little bit more for us, better for us. I mean, yeah, I think you brought up something really important, too, that we'll probably talk about in the section on the theme. But diversity is not just out, but it's in as well. We, Like you said, yeah. we are not one thing. And it's important to not just focus on like, yes, he was, you know, categorized as indecent because of his sexuality, but that's not all that he was. So I'm glad they didn't include more of a plot about like, you know, a boyfriend or a lover, you know, that because that wasn't necessary. That wasn't the story they were telling. Um, the last yeah. thing I want to say about the direction is I think Tildum is I mean, I think he's good throughout or at least competent throughout, but I think he really shines with these kind of simple two-person scenes. Like all the scenes with Benedict Cumberbatch and Karen Knightley are just – they're like – they're magic. Like, And it helps that the two of them are friends in real life before this was filmed, so they have kind of an automatic connection to each other. But the scene right. where he kind of sneaks into her uh, her apartment and they're kind of working things out, like he's given mm-hmm. her some materials he's not supposed to. Like those scenes really, really work for me, and it helps – 
I think Kira Knightley is one of those actresses also that has kind of a reserve of charm when she's working yeah. with the right person. So those scenes really work for me as well. No, absolutely. I mean, even Kira Knightley's this this performance compared to the rest of I've seen in Pirates of the Caribbean and even in uh, Dangerous Method. You're mm-hmm. looking at the the she's just constantly uh, she's overacting just a little bit. But mm-hmm. This one is very reserved, very natural, very nuanced. You know, so yeah. when she's not usually, I mean, when you're watching her in Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, she's actually speaking through her teeth almost most of the time. Right. Like she's gritting something, but at the, in this one, she was actually very articulate. You know, a lot of the emotion that she was trying to convey to Turing to the character in Benedict, it, it came off as really, really good for me. So yeah, those scenes worked. I mean, and even till the setting up the the shots that you're talking about. Uh, I had very seldom seen someone able to make a shot reverse shot scene so compelling. Yeah. You know, just in how the angles would work, he would actually film a little bit higher to show just who's actually winning a conversation at one point, mm. And then he'd reestablish with a two shot. And the only guy that I was actually able to see, you know, uh, as competent as that in two shots is actually Scorsese. So it was really, really fun to see that he was able to capture um, these conversations in a very natural way, but at the same time was able to communicate something while these people were playing their parts. Yeah, absolutely. I think, And I think that's the perfect opportunity to move into the acting because I remember – and I kind of forgot this until you brought it up. But I remember as I walked out of this movie the first time in the theater, and that's exactly what struck me about Kara Knightley's performance is how – calm and reserved it was because i hadn't seen that from her she was always you know like you mentioned the pirates movies those kind of things always very excitable and that's not necessarily Mm -hmm. bad but this is this was not a performance i was expecting out of her and i and it must have been tempting to go higher energy when you're acting against an alan turing character who is the opposite of that it would be it would be really easy to kind of go over the top because you're trying to you know bring up the energy of the scene but i liked that they and it made their relationship work because I feel like they matched one another in terms of that energy. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you want to look at it, the way that I saw that the performances work together is that uh, Turing, you know, when he's talking to Dennison at the beginning of the film, he has a bit of a stutter. He's, he's kind of looking down. He's the guy that's a little bit more reserved. You can see he's inward. But that changes when Kira Knightley's Joan Clark character comes in. He's actually a bit more open. He's not stuttery enough. So these are the little nuances that they were able to pepper yeah. out throughout the film. And I thought that, um, Joan's character, you know, Kira Knightley's character, was able to really be a soothing presence. Not only for us, because we're surrounded by these these mathematicians, even Hugh Alexander and Matthew Good's character. This is just so much masculinity going on at the same right. time that just bringing her in to kind of diffuse the situation was that peas and carrots motif again. You know, you just stick one of those things in, in the mix will change. You'll get a different taste, a little mm-hmm. bit of a savor. So yeah, I thought that the acting was great on her part. Yeah. And in terms of Benedict Cumberbatch, I think he's I think he's really, really good here. The only thing I was concerned with, like kind of of my own kind of metal watching of the film, not about right. his performance, but I found myself wondering, am I more convinced of his kind of lack of social grace because I came into this after seeing Sherlock? Like, is there this this right. kind of shortcut for the audience? Because that was a huge sensation. Like that was really, really big around the time this came out. So it made me wonder, like, OK, is this really as good of a performance as I think it is? Or am I like kind of predisposed to enjoy this version of Benedict Cumberbatch? Is it different enough from Sherlock to be a kind of different performance? Uh, well, to me, yes. I mean, Sherlock is all over the place. I mean, he's just chewing scenery left and right. You know, he's a hyper. He'll be uh, explosive as well, you know, whereas Turing is a little bit more calculated, a little bit more reserved. So I think that Cumberbatch's performance is, is way more nuanced than this, whereas when he's playing Sherlock, it's it's really intense. It's out there. It's come see me. You know, I'm going to show you what's what. Whereas Turing, 
he can be off-putting, but he has a certain charm about him that's right. really, really interesting. When, throughout the movie, you kind of feel like giving him a hug and saying everything's going to be all right, right. you know? <laughs> and even towards the end of the film, I tear up almost every time when he's with that with Christopher at the end. And then when uh, Joan comes to visit him in his apartment, he's going through the chemical castration. I mean, he, Cumberbatch is able to channel something where he, he the crying just really sets me off every time I'm like, Jesus Christ, man, yeah. get over here. Come over here so I can give you a big <laughs> hug. You know? yeah. So it works for me on, on every level there. That's definitely, no, I don't think that he goes overboard or anything like that. Sherlock's a different story. In this <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think the scene that gets me as far as his performance, my kind of favorite moment, and I love it. I love the scene itself, and this probably goes to direction as well, is you can read it two different ways. There's a scene where someone is going to come in and try and destroy Christopher, destroy his machine that he's building. Right. And he kind of throws himself in front of it and he's weeping, like kind of right. like, please don't do this. And I love yeah, that, that you can, and from everyone else's perspective, they're probably reading it as like, God, the only thing this guy cares about is, is his work, is his machine. But it's important that he's named this machine after the person who he first loved romantically, like whether yeah. or not anything happened there, that was his first crush as it were. Mm -hmm. So I like that there is a machine and a humanness to that. And then you have that kind of repeated when he's talking to knock, when he's talking to the investigators saying like talking about the Turing test earlier, doing a good job of dealing right. with that, but then saying, am I human or am I, am I a machine? Like having right. that kind of repeated theme in there, I think really, really works for me. And it's something that is more effective. I think the second time you watch it, rather than the first, because I think it's easy to kind of write it off as like, oh, well, he just loves his work. He loves his machine. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that's a great way to see it because there's a couple of places in the film that actually works, even the peas and carrots that I mentioned at the beginning. Some people are going, are going to interpret that as him having OCD as rather being just really organized and trying to separate those things. But, I mean, Tilden was doing something different. And to me, the scene that you're pointing out was actually showing what happens when you have old traditional values clashing with people that are set to break social codes, right? right? You have this guy designing this machine that to him is going to, like you said, it's a romantic relationship, but it's not necessarily a romantic relationship that's going to be physically rewarding, but one that's going to be internally rewarding for him as a person to be able to strive against adversity. And adversity in this case is Deniston, who is the old guard who has all these strict rules that he's won right. wars and he explains how he's won them. And so the scene, I think you can kind of analyze it from so many different angles and get something from it every time. Yeah. So speaking of, we're still kind of covering the acting. I think Mark Strong, Mark Strong deserves a mention here. I think he's, I mean, he's yeah. always good, uh, but, always. He's, <laughs> but he's such a good shadowy figure. Like the way, the way he kind of enters the movie is just, it's, it's fantastic. Like everyone, he talked, they talk about MI6 and someone says, oh, there's only five divisions. Like that's the spirit. Like I just love how smooth he is in these moments. And, but I also love these little moments between him, him and touring. Like he's, yeah. he's entertained by him. Like he always kind of has this smirk, like he kind of likes touring, even if he's someone who's difficult to be around. I think at some level he understands him more than the other people who work with him on a daily basis. I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think Mark Strong's character, uh, Menkes, I think he's called, mm -hmm. he, he does respect touring for the work that he's able to do. Right. But at the same time, I think that his character is a little bit, of a, of a sniveling shit in the sense that <laughs> he sees touring as a machine. Yeah. He's That's a means to, be, to an end. That's exactly. it. Exactly. And then after that, no one cares, but to bring up the scene that 
you talked about at the beginning, I think that that's where Tildum failed just a little bit. Mm. I thought it was too on the nose, like Man My Six is this shadowy thing, and he has to step out of He's the He's literally like, behind the curtain, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I was like, really? <laughs> In a show up Wizard of Oz style? But, um, yeah, but I know you're absolutely right. Mark Strong is great in everything he does. He's got so much suave. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. I'd love to see him in a Bond movie. I would watch that. Absolutely. And I think the other person to bring up is Matthew Good. I don't think he much is demanded of him here. He's supposed no. to be good looking and charming, and he does a great job of that kind of in every movie. Like he's just like if you want someone good looking, British and charming, just plug Matthew Good in there because he's he's right on point. Uh, but I yeah. did I did like kind of the arc of his relationship um, with touring. You know, I, I think. I think uh, if you were to tell me, like, here's what it is at the beginning and here's what it is at the end, I'm like, oh, that's going to be tough to get across. That's going to be tough to show that growth as as he is not the main character. But I thought they did a really good job with that in, in the script and in the actual acting of that. Absolutely. I mean, Matthew Good is a guy who doesn't get enough credit. He's right, mm-hmm. right now. He's, he's just a younger uh, Hugh Grant. Yeah. And I would love to see him in, in so many other things. Again, Bond, I beef him up a little bit. He'd probably be pretty good. Right. And I think, yeah, you're right. His character arc is actually really stellar because uh, once Joan Clark comes in, she becomes that, that cipher in the Enigma machine that is Turing. Right. But once they have that those beers, when she invites them over, when mm. she says, I don't have the luxury of being an ass, <laughs> a, couple of, a right. couple of scenes later, you'll have – Good's character that's going to walk in and he rewires Turing's machine diagonally right? and explains that by doing so, Turing's going to get more out of the rotors. So he's helping the calculation. So the arc in and of itself coming down to with diversity that you were talking about actually enables the whole team. The rewiring of the machine is the rewiring of the team. So that's where their paths actually intersect and they start working together. Those diagonal things is basically... Grant, uh, well, sorry, Alexander and Turing working together at the same time. So yeah, yeah, I thought that it was great to have them there at the same time. Yeah, yeah and he's also good, good under, yeah. He's also a great. Uh, he's a great comparison to Turing. Like he's a great foil for him. So you can really see how different these people are. We talk, we're talking about diversity a lot. And if you, they show the scene where he's kind of, you know, hitting on someone in the bar and, and Joan kind of turns to Turing and goes like, in case you were wondering, that's, that's what flirting looks like, you know, <laughs> and like just to yeah. see how different. And he's just kind of he's almost Turing in that scene is almost like an anthropologist. He's just like, so like, wow, how does he's that studying work? Studying monkeys. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think Matthew Good is the perfect choice for that kind of like that suave debonair character. All right. Uh, so let's talk about the screenplay. So, you know, this, this definitely takes the, the tack that a lot of biopics do where we kind of begin near the end. Um, so how do you think they handled that kind of jumping back and forth between the interrogation sequences and the sequences with the Enigma machine? Were there any moments that it took you out of the movie where the process wasn't, wasn't quite as smooth as it should have been? I'll be honest. Yes. Uh, I think that the first time I saw the movie, I was like, okay, what year is this now? Mm-hmm. We started in 51, then we go back to 1939. Then we're in Turing when he's in school. I don't remember exactly what right. year that was. <laughs> and then we move back to when he was talking to Nock, and I'm like, okay, is this 51 again? Is the, What investigation is actually going on? Right. Because it feels like the investigation at one point is in what they're doing with the Enigma machine and not exactly into Turing's uh, trial or what's going to happen to him after that. So. I think that the first time I watched the film, I was like, Ugh, this nonlinear <laughs> yeah. narrative is a little bit confusing. 
But now that I've seen it four and five and six times, I mean, I'm fine with it. I can navigate it because he uh, Tilden uh, actually uses a different color palette, and you can actually notice mm -hmm. uh, the, the the switches. You know, when he's talking to the investigator at knock, he's going to have more of a blue palette. Then the warm colors are going to come in when he's 1939 to the 1940s. And he's going to switch to a more um, overexposed, uh, lightly uh, desaturated tone when he's actually talking with uh, the um, when we say a younger touring with Christopher in the hallways. Right. I totally agree with that. I had the same experience. Um but one thing I really like is this kind of framing device of his opening monologue, how you don't know at that point who he's talking to. And I love right. the way that wraps up where he's about to kind of tell his story to this interrogator. I, I did appreciate that. And I think, you know, Cumberbatch is one of those actors who is a great talker. You could listen to him speak all day. So <laughs> absolutely. So him as a voiceover is just such a good choice um, to kind of start the film. And it's that opening monologue is really well written too. Like this whole idea yeah. of like, I'm not going to repeat myself. You got to listen and everything I say is going to be true. And it like really does kind of bring you into the movie. Like, okay, I'm ready. Let's hear this story. So I did really like that framing device, even if the other stuff got a little bit confusing. Yeah. And do, do you think that when Morgan Freeman passes, and I'm not sure. Do you think he might be a good choice. A, our new nature show voice would be that March of the Emperors two or something. Yeah, exactly. Benedict Cumberbatch. Quite possible. I mean, I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't be against that. Uh, one thing. I, just a quick question. Yeah. Um, did you get Did you get a weird feeling when when you hear Cumberbatch's voice come over as a voiceover? I, to me, the first time I heard the, film, I was like. Oh, this is beginning like Nolan's The Prestige. It's like, uh, are you watching yeah. closely? And I was like, oh, what, what, what are you doing? Is that, are we talking about magicians again? Right, <laughs> right. You know, it's just like a sleight of hand thing. What are we, <laughs> where should my eyes be? Yeah, definitely. I could definitely see that. Um, I think one weakness of the script, and it's something you really can't avoid with topics like this, is this, you know, we talk about all the time in, in film about this idea of show don't tell. Right. Like if you have a lot of exposition, it can get a it can wear on you a little bit. But when you're talking about things like the Enigma machine, Enigma machine, when you're talking about the Turing test, you kind of have to do that. And I feel like they still did a pretty good job with it, especially explaining the, the Enigma machine, like kind of talking about why this is so difficult to solve. And it's. And it's set perfectly because everyone in there is in the same place as the audience. They don't know right. anything about the Enigma machine either. Like it does get a little wordy. It does get a little lengthy. But I think given the situation they're in, I think they handle it relatively well. I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. They do handle it well. Can it be off-putting? Yes. But these guys, we're in a room full of geniuses and we're sitting at home with popcorn. I mean, right. to a certain extent, you're already taken out of the element. So I think that the exposition in this case is very much necessary for the yeah. audience to actually want to root for these people. Mm -hmm. And the way that it's done also is to, if you notice how uh, the scene is set up, uh, touring is always uh, outside the circle. I mean, you'll have the four guys on the, le on the mm -hmm. left and then you'll have touring on the right. So even when they're talking, you can sense that they're not even speaking the same language. Right. So I thought that. Yeah, and that's and that's great staging from the director too, like yeah. always keeping him apart, especially at the beginning of the film, because yeah. he is not connecting with these other people, whether it be because he's socially not great or because he thinks he's better than them. Whatever it is, he's always separate, which I really like. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the screenplay, I don't know. I, I didn't mind it that much. I think when you talk about the screenplay, the flashbacks, the war scenes that – I, I will have to agree with you that sometimes you can you can be like, why are we seeing this? But I felt like the, he was using it more as uh, transitions between acts. Yeah. 
right? Yeah, totally so I agree. think that as a separation between acts, it was kind of cool because the end of act one is essentially that. Turing is going to post the crossword puzzle. Then we're going to get a little montage and uh, Alexandre Desplat's wonderful score starts playing over it. Then there's a bombing raid. People are doing a crossword puzzle, enter act two. Then we get into the room. So I thought it was kind of cool as a separation for the yeah, film. But other than that, true. you could be a little bit jarring. Yeah. And that score, by the way, Desplat wrote it in two weeks. So that's pretty impressive. Oh, man. So. That is glorious. Yeah. I, had no, I didn't know that. What a, yeah. Oh, wow. So cool. Uh, the only other question I had about the script is – you know, I'm I'm kind of predisposed to enjoy this sequence I'm about to talk about, but I'm wondering if it works for everyone else. Like there is this whole sequence where eventually everyone comes over to to Turing's side and decides to work with him. And I was wondering if you thought like with all these people who were against him from the very beginning, does that sequence work? Does it is it convincing or is it just like, OK, it's a movie convention. We have to just accept it to get to where we're going. <laughs> Definitely has an ex machina feel to it. Yeah. When Denniston is actually going to close the machine down and t- turn it off. Right. And I can't wait to fire you. And then, like, Hugh Alexander wasn't even in this in the room. Right. And he just, you know, the camera just goes back to an establishing shot, and then you see like, what? Where is he? It just yeah. drops in like Batman. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, for a biopic, for something that I think that mainstream audiences, because this is who this is geared for, I think that it has to work that way right am i predisposed to it the same way you are definitely because i can kind of take myself out of a picture if i'm watching something that's going to be you know i don't know something from japan that's you know or or you know actually i was on mike's show the other day we were talking about the assassin from china Mm -hmm. and i mean you i can't recommend that to any mainstream audience because the conventions aren't the same so in a movie like this one in a film like this one i should say rather I think it's necessary in order to just keep the the narrative arcs going and the beats going to have that 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 kind of ex machina moment. So yeah, it didn't yeah. bother me. I, I thought it was okay. It was acceptable. Yeah. The last thing I really like though is the kind of faint that this movie gives you of you know we know probably that there's some there's a double agent somewhere and. The first time I watched this, it definitely took me by surprise who it was. I thought they did a good job with making uh, Karen Cross a a character you liked because he was – even if he was still in this situation, he at some level accepted – he accepted touring for who he was. They have that really sweet scene uh, at the bar where he kind of tells them like, yeah, I know you're gay. Just don't tell anybody, but I don't care. And I really like that moment. So it's kind of heartbreaking when you have that kind of Bible reveal – where you find out he right. he's the enemy. <laughs> I didn't care for that at all. Mm. I, I I thought it was just, um, I thought he was a weasel because the way mm. that he's accepting him in the bar, the way that it turns and the fact that he's actually a Soviet spy, you're like, oh, the only reason he's accepting mm-hmm. his, his homosexuality is because he can use it against him. Yep. So I thought it was a weird ploy uh, to use. And so to have that arc, for that character, was it necessary to include it in the film? Nah. Probably not. For me personally, I was like, well, why, why are we going down here? I like what Mark, Mark Strong's character had to say when he said, oh, we know. Now the fact that he's actually friends with you, we can use that against him to feed Stalin whatever the hell we want to feed yep. him. So I thought that was a brilliant line and being able to kind of bring it in that way, that was great. But other than that, I couldn't care less about mm. that guy's arc. <laughs> right. I think for me, the reason I liked it is it, is it gave us another another point for why this is all so sad when the end of the film happens. That like the one person he thought maybe he could trust with this information ends up as a double agent. So of course, through the rest of his life, he's not going to tell anybody 
about, yeah, you're right. you know, so I think, I think it's something that could be taken out and it wouldn't hurt the movie, but for me, I'm glad it was there. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the production value. So I think this is something, this is somewhere where this movie shines. Like they're yeah. kind of re- rebuilding a Bletchley Park is amazing. The, you know, his machine is incredible. Although I did read that they, they kind of cinematically kind of up the ante there. They made it larger and they showed more of the kind of internal parts. Uh, but I think that really works cinematically and I'm glad they did that. But something I found out that they did that I'm like, shocked and probably no one will ever notice is that both Cumberbatch and the actor who played the young Turing were wearing dentures that were modeled after Alan Turing's teeth. Like they went to that level of like, we're going to do it. I was like, guys, calm down. No one's looking at your teeth that closely. Uh, but like, it just shows that they were willing, right. But it does show that they're willing to kind of go the extra mile to kind of connect this with the real person, which I appreciated. Uh, yeah, that's cool. That's some <laughs> trivia that I'll be able to answer now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I know in terms of production value, I thought that this is a very classy picture. Yeah. Uh, it looked good. The lighting, everything was kind of great. You know, um, like the directing, I, I thought it was good. You know, there's a couple of choices like we, we talked about earlier that were a little bit more, you know, risky, but at the same time didn't fall flat. But at the same time, I, overall, I thought that this was a very slick looking picture. It didn't. Yeah come off as weird everything was uh, there's no shaky cam or anything like that it was made by (laughs) a real professional team and it looked fantastic in my opinion yeah yeah, and i thought like you know little things uh like the costuming in this film were impeccable like every like this did not feel like a this didn't feel like it was modern and which is a good thing sometimes you'll see these movies that are set in the 30s or the 50s or the 60s and people are wearing suits and you're like i feel like i could go buy that now and yeah, it wouldn't be right. that difficult. But this felt like they really spent the time and the energy to make this look like the time that they were setting it. And and you mentioned this in kind of the color palette, too, how the 30s and the 50s looked very different. And that's mm-hmm. true uh, with costume as well. And we also mentioned the score, uh, which I almost never mention on films because I almost never noticed them. But I just thought this was beautiful. Like, and it really... And it wasn't distracting. Sometimes you'll you're hear, you'll hear a score and you're like, this is great, uh, but I'm not watching the movie anymore. I'm just listening to this piece of music. And this is definitely not that kind of movie. It really was seamless in that way. I rewatched the film uh, again this week and the score is still playing in my head. Mm. That's how much I enjoy it. I'm just walking around and I felt a little bit like Tree of Life. Uh, to uh, sure. Extent. And I thought it was great. If he wrote it in two weeks, maybe he just kind of picked parts. It was like, maybe. okay, they're not going to notice if I take this. <laughs> this is like... What's his name? Gladiator and, and Pirates of the Caribbean. Right. <laughs> it's just the same score. But uh, you're absolutely right with the costumes. I caught myself noticing uh, when he was uh, when Turing is actually having a conversation with Clark, uh, when he's actually telling her, I can't be with you. The jacket that he has on uh, is really nice. It's really period accurate. Mm-hmm. And it looked strange because that's the kind of jacket that you're like, wow, I, I have that at home. I would never wear it. But it's one of those <laughs> right. things that I'd have as a collector's item. I thought it looked great. So you're absolutely right. I picked up on that yesterday, but uh, I hadn't yeah. written anything down on it. <laughs> and I think in a movie like this with people who are well-known, when you talk about Benedict Cumberbatch and Kira Knightley, like these are things that have to fit. Uh, because I think if the costume is off and it looks modern, then we're just thinking of the stars that are in this movie and not Alan Turing. And that does a disrespect to someone who's been disrespected, you know, not only during his life, but for the 50 years after his death, where he yeah. was, you know, hadn't been pardoned and all this kind of stuff. Like, so it's important for us to tell the story of Turing finally and tell it in a good way uh, that respects him. So I'm glad that they really did the work to make us feel like we were in the 30s in Bletchley Park. 
So right. All right. So let's talk about our favorite scenes. So what's what's one of your favorite scenes in the film? Uh, I think it's the scene where Cumberbatch is is really crying at the end. Uh, for mm-hmm. some reason, that guy crying gets me every time. Even that one tear in Star Trek Into Darkness, I'm mm. like, Jesus. You can even feel Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto in the background going like, what do we do now? Right. This guy just, we are out of our depth. <laughs> exactly. We have to let him be. So I think that the end when when he has to really when he when he really just explodes emotionally and says to to Joan, you you can't let them leave me alone. They can't, you know, take my my Christopher away from me and all that. Right. I was like, I, I so understand. This is the only person that ever really understood him or respected him for who he was and 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 not necessarily for what he could do, but just as a right. person, as an individual, and saw the quality person that was inside who Alan Turing was. And I think Joan brings that out in him and being able to kind of release that kind of emotion in front of her shows that if only I had you in my life, you know, now that she's married and gone, he pushed her away in order to save her. It's the last sacrifice that he has. But if they take the the, the machine away from him, if they take the computer, you know, when he says, Christopher, he's grown so smart, you feel like this is something he's been nursing for so long. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's an achievement. And I, that scene to me gets me every time because I'm an emotional guy when it comes to things like that. But for some reason, Cumberbatch is one of those guys that will make me cry every time. Right. <laughs> yeah, for me, there's a there's a couple scenes that really stand out. Uh, the first one is when he kind of first comes to try and get the job. And she the- told you to help yourself to tea while you were here? Uh, no, she didn't. She obviously didn't tell you what a joke was then either, I gather. Was she supposed to? Who are you? Alan Turing. Yeah, Turing, the mathematician. Correct. However could I have guessed? Didn't you just read it on that piece of paper? Now, it says here you were a bit of a prodigy in the maths department. I'm not sure I can evaluate that, Mr... How old are you, Mr Turing? Uh, 27. And how old were you when you became a fellow at Cambridge? 24. And how old were you when you published this paper that has a title I can barely understand? Uh, uh, 23. Then you don't think that qualifies you as a certified prodigy? Well, Newton discovered binomial theorem age 22. Einstein wrote four papers that changed the world by the age of 26. As far as I can tell, I've, uh, <laughs> I've barely made par. My God, you're serious. Would you prefer I made a joke? Oh, I don't think you know what those are. It, it accomplishes two things. It's clever, it's fun, it's a great introduction to the film, but it's also a great introduction to who Alan Turing is and the way he's going to interact. Like, you know right away, like, this is someone who is not comfortable around people. Like he doesn't oh. <laughs> know how to communicate and how to interact. So I thought that was really well done. And I also liked uh, when we first meet Joan, the kind of six minute sequence where she's brilliant. It's yeah. just fantastic. Like it's, it's re- it works comedically. It works dramatically. I love the moment where he turns to the other guy and says like, no, no, I couldn't do this in six. This is about seeing Eight how minutes. they think. And then yeah. she pops up like, Oh, all done. And I really, I like that moment a lot. Yeah. And the other thing I like is I think this is the best, uh, there's kind of a not end credits, but there's kind of an overlay of what happens with the rest of Turing's life with, right, the, with, the, the, with, with the background of the burning. So I like that there's kind of this almost this joyous moment. And then it's right. it's counteracted with the like, look at how terrible this ended up because of how we think about people and what they yeah. do with their private lives. And I think it's one of the few movies where that's kind of worked for me. I think the end of Spotlight 
worked for me in that way where you kind of get all this information. I think in right. most movies you're kind of like, okay, I can look that up on Wikipedia. I don't really need to know this, but I think it really worked. And it was the first time I can remember just being moved by like kind of a summary of the end of someone's life, like moved almost to tears that like he did. We've seen all this, all these great things that he did. And not only did he commit suicide likely because of how he was treated, but it took like half of a century for England to pardon him. You know, yeah. that's, that's terrible. Like that's just, and I remember Benedict Cumberbatch being interviewed about this and he's like, he doesn't need to be pardoned. We need to be pardoned for the way he treated him. And I thought that was a wow, really that's a brilliant way good to way to look Absolutely. at it. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think you're right. Yeah, that final scene is really wonderful because it, it's a juxtaposition of how sad his life ended up right. with how happy he was at a specific moment in time and actually building those bonds with those people are actually making a difference for the entire world. So I think that the juxtaposition between the message of sadness and happiness is really interesting uh, near the end because it's that intersection that I was talking about with the wires earlier that really plays its part in the film. But I don't know. There was a couple of things with, with, with regards to historical inaccuracy. I think that people were talking about and at the same time, I I didn't care much about that. I thought it was more uh, of of a film that kind of had to cater to what you were talking about, basically, on the show today, the diversity and whatnot. So I think the story needed to be told. Did he need to be pardoned? I think Cumberbatch hit the nail on the head and says, no, it's us. We need yeah. to be the ones that are pardoned because we have no idea what we're doing to people like this who are important. We should actually not necessarily venerate them, but respect them for who they are. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's talk about the theme. You just brought up diversity. So how do you feel like diver- the theme of diversity played into this movie? Did that work for you as a theme? Um, yeah, I thought it was kind of cool. I thought that, you know, Turing himself, he sees these people as a means to an end, mm-hmm. right? A-, a little bit like Mark Strong's characters yeah. see these people as a means to an end. So you have these these little things that are interplaying uh, between these characters. But at the same time, when Joan really comes in, She's the one that really is that missing cog in the system that's going to decipher Turing, as I said earlier. And so I thought that it was pleasant to see how society does not want these these men and women to mix. But at the same time, it's so much there's so much to benefit from it. They do, you know. And so the fact that homosexuality kind of took a little bit uh, of of um, how can I put it? They put it aside a little bit just so that we can get that intermingling between men and women and that sexuality has nothing to do with what we can achieve you know as people together i thought that was a very clever way of showing how diversity would work in a society now today so i I think it was kind of cool did they overdo it i don't think so i think that sometimes they're kind of mixing things that could have been done a little bit better Mm. but overall i think that the message for me was clear and i enjoyed it yeah. So for me, I think there's two moments in the, I mean, there's lots of moments in the film that, that focus on diversity because it is all about this team working together. But there's two moments that stand out to me. There's a scene where he kind of is telling Joan he doesn't want to work with these people. And she kind of tells him, you need all the help you can get. Like exactly, you're yeah. starting over every day. So just open up. And I think that's about the time uh, when Matthew Good's character kind of shows up and, you know, comes up with the idea of moving this diagonally. And I think that is his kind of aha moment, his kind of light bulb over his head moment. So I thought that really worked. And I love the fact that they kept repeating this line 
uh, sometimes it's the people who no one imagines anything of who do the things that no one can imagine. And I love that line because it starts out, I think, as a selfish thing for touring. Like he sees himself as the other people. But then as the movie goes along, he realizes that, oh, I'm not above these people. These other people can help me, too. So, like, I like how the 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 kind of that line almost has an arc in the movie where it starts yeah. out as selfish and then becomes unselfish and working with these people. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. And I think that that points to what I said in the year, in the beginning, where it, they stop looking at their differences and Turing actually starts to see what they have in common. And what they have in common is trying to strive to end this war, you know, by, right. by working around this this math. Math is what actually brings them together with, with Joan as well. Yep. And so, yeah, I think that she's the one who, who really uh, is able to kind of wipe the Vaseline from his eyes, so to mm-hmm. speak, and say, hey, listen, you're going to need all the help that you can get. So, yeah, I'll echo exactly what you're saying. You're absolutely right. Nice. All right. So the last thing we have to talk about is the movie we're tying this into. So, of course, we're tying into Hidden Figures, which is another kind of story we all know, but we don't know the background. Like we know about a lot of people know about uh, this, this kind of this kind of story. Um, but what about one? Have you seen Hidden Figures? Or are you looking forward to seeing it if you haven't? I'm looking forward to seeing it. Sadly, it's not playing in Quebec City. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to wait to see it most likely on iTunes. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I'm looking forward to seeing it. It looks like a story that, that, I mean, I had no idea this existed. I had no idea mm-hmm. about these math right. women. And I think it's great that this is coming out now because it, it's really at the height of where diversity has become part of popular discourse. And we need to be talking about these things, but now they're just unearthing all these stories from all over the place. We're like, why weren't we told about these, these wonderful people that had helped to, 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 to make the world a better place, so to speak. And right. So I'm really looking forward to seeing it. The buzz has been great, even for Moonlight. You know, that was wonderful mm-hmm. in terms of, of what uh, you had to say about it. So, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. So uh, I have seen it. So I'm not going to, of course, talk on this episode about all my opinions about it. But uh, kind of looking back, this was actually a movie – uh, when I first heard about it, I was kind of like, yeah, I'll see it, but I wasn't super excited about it. Uh, but then it started getting a lot of buzz about these performances, and I think – I'll say this. It's definitely worth seeing. Uh, and if you tune in in a couple of days, you'll find out what I actually think uh, about Hidden Figures. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> cool. All right. Um, so before you head off, why don't you tell people uh, how to contact you on Twitter one more time? Yep. Well, my name is Jason Michael. You can contact me on Twitter, as David said, at film underscore faculty. Uh, be sure to give me a follow. Uh, also, you can find the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Just look for Atlantic SC podcast. And uh, you can find Lee Brady at Big Picture Reviews. He's the, my co-host. We have a wonderful time. I'm mostly the guy that's on Twitter. Lee is a little bit more of a savage when it comes to that. <laughs> And uh, you can also find some of the stuff that I wrote over on Film Faculty on WordPress and actually some of the stuff that David did. So if you're a fan of his, come on over to the page. We have a bunch of stuff waiting for you. Planets faithfully keep an orbit with the probable tip. The universe expands left. The body of my sex possess extra strength. Power All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to connect with the show further, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. Obviously, just keep listening or go to followingfilms.com and check out our other great movie podcasts like War Machine vs. Warhorse and the best and worst of the best. Or you can find me on Twitter at PCK Study. We're also on Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. Just look up Pop Culture Case Study or PCK Study and you should find us there. 
But really, the absolute best way to help the show out is there's a site called Patreon where you can actually donate on a per-episode basis. And we only charge you four times a month instead of the eight that we actually do episodes. But it's a really great way to support an independent podcast. And you can get some pretty cool rewards. You can even plan the show out for me. You know, you can pick which movie you want me to watch if you donate enough for a long enough period of time. So lots of cool opportunities there. So be sure to check that out at patreon.com slash pop culture case study and donate and be a part of the show. All right. So the next time you hear me, we will be doing a review of Hidden Figures just in time for the Oscars. Um, that seems to be a a movie that kind of seems to have come out of nowhere to maybe challenge La La Land for Best Picture. But who knows? La La Land could be just the, the juggernaut that, that Hollywood loves where it talks about itself. So, you know, we'll find out. But we will be talking about Hidden Figures coming up. So stay tuned for that. So until then, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. I'm going to have to go with the, the, the end scene when Cumberbitch... Uh, Cumberbitch. <laughs> Shit, that's an outtake. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> <that's> okay. <laughs> Getting found with nine mils. It's 10 p.m. where your C's at. What's the deal? They on the hill pumping grills to keep their bellies filled. Light in the ass with heavy steel. Sights on the pretty shit in life. Young soldiers trying to earn their next strike. When the average minimum wage is 515, you best believe you gotta find a new grind to get cream. The white unemployment rate is nearly more than triple for black. So front liners got their gun in your back. Bubble and crack. Jews after robbery to combat.